0: You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics.
1: Greetings and welcome to Domecast, the news and observer and insider politics podcast. I'm Don Vaughn here with Colin Campbell, Daniel Battaglia, and Lucille Sherman. And our topic theme this week is also arguably one of the biggest news stories this week, which is Joe Biden picking Kamala Harris as his running mate for the um, Democratic candidates for president and vice president. And Kamala Harris's would be, if she wins, is a lot of firsts. Uh, of course, she's the third woman that has been a major party vice presidential nominee. But unfortunately, neither of the um, of the three have won. Uh, so it, it could be a historic moment. We'll find out, um, I guess, in a couple of months here. So we've got like a whole bunch of things at play. She's a Black woman. Um, from Indian descent. She went to an HBCU, which we haven't had, uh, a whole bunch of stuff going on. And Lucille, you could put together in our Under the Dome newsletter kind of all of this and, and what this representation potentially means, um, primarily looking at women, um, and especially with a D rating, I guess, that North Carolina came out uh, with this week, uh, Colin, that you wrote some about. So what do you guys think?
2: Yeah, I definitely think um, the Kamala Harris pick was historic and big news. Um, But I was really interested in looking at, yeah, what does this mean kind of for North Carolina and what does this mean for women in general? The timing of this was really interesting because on the same day that Joe Biden announced his pick of Kamala Harris, a group um, put out a report for North Carolina women in politics giving North Carolina a D rating, um, which was for a variety of things that Colin reported on. Um, But I thought that his story was really interesting, just sort of up against the fact that we have this really big historic pick for a vice presidential candidate. And then at the same time, North Carolina gets a D rating for women in politics. Can you talk more about some of the statistics? Yeah, that I were pulled up by this,
0: the report. This is a report that came out, it's this national group called the Institute for Women's Policy Research. Uh, and they did this report on women in politics in conjunction with the Council for Women and Youth Involvement, which is a corner of state and state government that I'm uh, embarrassed to say I didn't really know much about before they had a meeting that I covered this week. Um, And they found that uh, they looked at the percentage of women in each branch of government. Uh, And in the NC House, uh, there's 28% female, uh, which is up slightly from 22% in 2015. So an improvement there, but that's offset by the Senate, where the same number went from 24% uh, five years ago to 20% now. Um, the congressional delegations dropped pretty significantly um, from 23% uh, in 2015 to 15% this year. That could change pretty dramatically, as a couple of people pointed out to me on Twitter, um, if several of the Democratic candidates who are female for Congress this year win, including uh, Deborah Ross in the Raleigh area, Kathy Manning in the Triad area, and there's even talk that. Um, former Supreme Court Justice Patricia Timmons Goodson, who's running against Republican Congressman Richard Hudson in the eighth. Uh, they say she's pretty competitive in that. So if she won, and that would really increase the percentage of women in the congressional delegation. Of course, the state's U.S. senators are going to be two men, two white guys, uh, regardless of who wins and the governor, kind of race. And governor, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the, the bright spot it looked like in uh, for women's representation was sort of uh, on the obscure side of this. Um, the boards and commissions, of which there are hundreds uh, of appointments that the governor makes, uh, that's nearly 50 50 under Cooper. So it looks like he's sort of deliberately been trying to uh, make sure it's uh, an even split. And then uh, women occupy about a third of the seats on the Council of State, which is all the elected officials uh, from lieutenant governor to labor commissioner and all those that are elected statewide. Um, But yeah, overall North Carolina gets a D for that. uh, When you couple those pieces of information with uh, voter registration data and voter participation for the 2016 election, which is the first the last presidential year that they were, basing things on. uh, The stat that was really kind of depressing in this was um, a comment that Secretary of Administration Michelle Sanders made during the meeting uh, was that at the current pace of change uh, of increase in representation in the legislature for women, it'll take until 2084 before women have exactly half the seats in the legislature. Uh, So certainly this report is causing calls for uh, things to move a little bit faster in that direction than uh, the rate we're going right now.
1: I feel like one of the words of the year is yikes. And that's my response
2: to that. Yeah. Well, I just think this is really interesting because in my mind, when Hillary Clinton was the Democratic not presidential nominee um, for the 2016 election, I was like, well, everything's gonna change. You know, I thought there would sort of be much more female representation in all um branches of government after having a female presidential nominee, but um, yeah, that really hasn't happened in the, in the last four years, which I think is really interesting. So I'm I'm going to be looking forward to seeing what this Kamala Harris pick, you know, how this trickles down to affect, you know, in particular state government and our representation in North Carolina. And
0: I think there's definitely a no. chance for um, more at this point. I mean, you've got uh, Lieutenant Governor Yvonne Holly or a candidate for Lieutenant Governor Yvonne Holly. Uh, Who's also an African American woman. Uh, Ditto for Wake County Commissioner Jessica Holmes, who's running for labor commissioner. Um, And Don, you wrote about the the sort of sorority HBCU connection between Holly and um, Kamala Harris in your story. I was
1: going to say, on like the national scale, we're so far behind other countries. I mean, Margaret Thatcher—that was what over a generation ago. You know. Um, so the United States is behind the times in um, a lot of ways, and in particular in that way. Of course, we're ahead, you know, in other ways. But, um, yeah, so the HBCUs, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I covered Durham for a long time, so I was very familiar with HBCUs through North Carolina Central University and um, and familiar with the historically Black fraternities and sororities there, too, even from when I covered religion, because churches will have... Um, you know, Divine Nine day where you wear your pink and green if you're AKA or, or the other. Um, I don't want to mess anyone's colors up. Um, but you know, if I see a group of uh, older African American men all wearing red, I know that I believe it's Kappas. You know, and um, and so it's an identifier that isn't like the predominantly white um, Greek system in colleges because it's um, because of these graduate chapters. It's something that you're a part of the rest of your life. So that's a different different significance there. And the um, fraternity Alpha Phi Alpha, Martin Luther King was in that. When I would cover the annual Martin Luther King Day march in downtown Durham, there are always a group of alphas that would march together. So it's a community that that lasts for decades. Yeah, and they're very politically
0: we, active too. I mean there's the Divine Nine lobby day at the legislature every yeah, year when includes, a bunch of them come in and have their you yeah. know their political agenda that they're trying to get passed.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're leaders. I think when I moved over to the uh, state government beat, one of the first press conferences I covered was state Senator Erica Smith um, with a theme like just of, you know, HBCUs. And she's one that, you know, she went to an HBCU. She, I believe, is a divine nine um, sorority. And we weren't able to get her for this particular story that um, that I did this week with, with Brian Murphy, our DC correspondent. But I talked to Congresswoman Alma Adams and I talked to Durham City Council member Middleton, who's an alpha, and, and a lot of um, both Adams and Middleton went to a which is Central's rival. Uh, and and the, the representation of HBCUs in North Carolina anyway, I think is maybe a given to those of us that, that live and work here, but it's not maybe on, on the recognition scale of, to, to the rest of the country. And I think that's one thing that Kamala Harris um, going to Howard, which I think everyone has heard of Howard, but maybe they haven't. Will so they have now. You know, Howard, of course, is a, is a very big deal, an elite university. Um, so it raises a profile for all of that. For, but for those students who are those current students of HBCUs and graduates of it, um, what I'm hearing, especially from the political leaders, is that this is just the confirmation and affirmation of what they already know and, and the advantage that they've gotten from um, from an HBCU education. So I think we'll see even more of that, You know, especially if um, Yvonne lewis Holly wins. Um, I don't think we've had a Lieutenant Governor. We haven't had an African-American Lieutenant Governor at all. Of course, her and Mark Robinson, so we're having one no matter who wins, um, that is an HBCU grad. So this really just, um, I guess, makes it more on the national radar than it, um, than it normally would be. Um, especially for you know maybe white people that don't pay attention, um, and they are now. So there's a whole lot of factors with with Kamala, and of course her um, her Indian an- ancestry, her mother, or her mother's family, and so there's just so many things that's all wrapped in together. You know, um, so that it's kind of hard to sort of parse out. Like I said, I wanted to do a story just on HBCUs and the. Um, her being an AKA and, and that factor, but there's there's so much to write about, and um, people are excited about um, all the different groups that she's pulling in. I think.
0: Yeah, and I think that's pretty key for you know it's hard to understand how key this is for North Carolina, being is we're one of the five or six top swing states, um, and I think sort of having that diversity on the ticket really helps Biden. Um, what will be interesting to see is that sort of in a, a normal non-pandemic year. Um, I think you'd see the Biden campaign really relying on Harris to do a lot of events in places like North Carolina to go to HBCUs and hold big campaign events. Uh, but since they're not doing a lot of in-person campaigning, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. And if there's a way for them uh, to sort of galvanize that aspect of North Carolina's population um, in a way that is still socially distanced and doesn't involve, you know, having a big rally at, you know, NC central or something, which is, I think is exactly what you'd see, uh, if this was a normal uh, election year,
1: well, even tomorrow, we're recording this on Friday, and you know, Biden's campaign said that um, you know, Representative G.K. Butterfield is having something with, um, I think, with Central students tomorrow, and in another you know non-coronavirus world that would probably be in person tomorrow. You know, we'd all be covering visits. We've seen you know a lot of these candidates in the primary, but it's just it's weird, you know, like just how we everything is a is a video call. And sometimes that makes things more accessible, but it also doesn't give you that feeling from seeing people in person. You know, and I was talking to both political parties about Cooper and Forrest's various campaigning tactics and the, and CGOP said, um, you know, Wig- Wigington said that you know, we'll leave it up to them and it's different. Not everyone has, you know, capability, even just us recording Domecast, you know, we have technical issues sometimes. So if, if somebody wants to meet their candidate, um, you know, maybe mass distant um, in person is the way that that they can um, find out more about who they want to vote for versus having, um, you know, a great internet connection and, and following things that way. So um, I think a lot of this is exacerbated, of course, the rural urban divide, um and the candidates know that and have to figure something out. I think they're, I mean, they're still
0: figuring it out. Or yeah, certainly. I think they've got to figure out some way to reach older voters. I had this thought yesterday when I was trying uh, unsuccessfully to uh, attend virtually a, a random state government committee meeting that was being held through Microsoft Teams, and I couldn't get it to work on my computer. And it's like, I'm reasonably technically sa- technologically savvy, but if I were – you know, 75 years old, don't really use a computer regularly, and for some reason had a strong interest in attending that meeting, you can't go in person, there's nowhere in person to go. Um, So if you can't get through the platforms that a campaign or a government agency is using to have these meetings, you're pretty much shut out. So I think that like, like you say, Don, that's going to be something they're going to have to consider. Um, You know, how do you reach these people who aren't going to be able to zoom into a, you know, round table discussion or a a campaign event or something like that.
2: Um, One other um, interesting race I want to mention that I'm going to be keeping an eye on is um, the Senate district 37, which is going to be Sony Nichols and Jeff Jackson. Um, Sony Nichols is a black woman um, running for the Republican Party in this instance. And it's going to be a really interesting race. Jeff Jackson is a pretty outspoken, well-known Democrat in North Carolina. Um, So I think it will be an interesting one to watch for sure. And with that in mind, I also want to mention that one interesting statistic that I found is, um, I think it's something like 82% of black women are registered Democrats. That means it's a really, really slim margin of black women that are registered Republicans. So this race will be interesting, um, for many reasons, but also just sort of another look at like, you know, how will Kamala Harris, Joe Biden ticket affect all of these down ballot races?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I just want to, you know, throw out sort of we're using that as a springboard to just legislative races in general um, and, and various state level races. This, you know, if it's a good year, particularly for Democrats, but I think, you know, the Nichols race could be one of these where um, this could end up being a really strong year for women of color. Uh, I was looking at the other uh, sort of legislative races to watch and, and candidates who are, are women of color who who might be, uh, potentially strong in, in legislative races. Um, Nichols isn't the only Republican candidate who is non-white, um, who is uh, potentially strong. The other one to watch is a race down in Robeson County for House. It's the seat that's currently occupied by uh, Representative Charles Graham, who I think currently is the only um, American Indian uh, member of the legislature, uh, he's being challenged by former state board of education member, Olivia Oxendine, who's also uh, part of the uh, Lumbee uh, Indian tribe in that area. Um, so she could potentially win that race. I think that's a pretty competitive seat. Um, Other folks to to watch in the legislature, Um, Erica Smith, who ran unsuccessfully in the U.S. Senate primary, um, is not going to be coming back to the legislature. She's likely going to be replaced by a county commissioner from her district in Northeastern NC named Ernestine Bazemore, also a a black woman. Um, And then we've got uh, several others. Uh, who are, are running for various seats across the state and, and may be successful on the, the Democratic side. Um, and certainly some some rising stars in the legislature who are, are black women like uh, Vernetta Alston from Durham, who was just recently appointed and has already sort of been making some waves in the House. Um, you, you've got several other folks like uh, Carolyn Logan from Charlotte, who's a former law enforcement officer in the House um, and will be seeking other terms. So uh, particularly if there's a change in leadership, uh, and I think there's going to be a push for... Uh, folks in, in leadership roles. Well, um, so I think I mean, it'd be if,
1: a- if the Democrats get the Senate, then you know, it, it, I don't we all know if it's blue. Is it going to be Choturi? You know, he would. Uh, would he be the first? You know, Indian American um, Senate leader?
0: Yeah, I think you know, I think I the be? Indian American community uh, is really excited about you know Harris's you know. An aspect of her identity. Um, but certainly if Chaudhary uh, is reelected, he'll probably be reelected in a, in a safe district. But if Dems take the majority in the Senate, you know, he's the number two leader in the Senate right now, I believe. Um, so, you know, maybe Dan Blue becomes Senate uh, pro-Tem, maybe, you know, Chaudhary is the very powerful rules chairman, or maybe it's the other way around. Um, certainly all that would be sort of history-making, you know, when Chaudhary was elected uh, or appointed, I think it was after Stein left office, uh, he was the first Indian American to serve in the legislature. Um, so really, I mean, the, the one group that's not represented in any of this is uh, Latino. Um, you know, there's really, there's nobody in the legislature from that background, even though there's, you know, a very sizable percentage of the state um, that, you know, hails from Latin America uh, or their family does. Um and looking down the list of legislative candidates, there's only a couple maybe who would who would sort of check that box if they were to win. Uh, I think the one candidate I saw was Ricky Hurtado, who's running against uh, Republican Representative Stephen Ross in Alamance County. But really, neither party has done a good job of recruiting from that population at all.
1: Right. I mean, if you look at, obviously, Republicans are... Majority men and the Democrats are better at uh, having more diverse candidates and people they elect. But if you look at our state legislature, everyone in charge, including the Democrats, um, is a white man at the very top um, levels of, um, in, in each chamber. Um, and of course, our governor is no matter what. So it's not just, you know, it's, it wouldn't be fair to say, well, only Republicans, uh, while certainly they have, you know, fewer women and, and much, much fewer. Uh, people of color. Um, the Democrats aren't necessarily representative of who our population is. You know, do we represent um, who lives here? Like, the fact of half of the state, half of this country, half of the world is women, and are half of us represented in government? No.
2: I also want to mention, if sort of all of the races that we've just mentioned over the course of this conversation, if all of the typically underrepresented candidates, win. we're still a long way off of representing the population of North Carolina um, proportionately, even if all of the people we just talked about win. You know, like, as Colin said, we earned a D rating in North Carolina. Yeah, we we North might get a C weapons. of all
0: the people we just talked about won, but I don't, I'm not sure we could make it to a B.
2: And I'm not even, I mean, I'm not sure all those people will win. So I think no matter what, we're still really a long way off from our representation in North Carolina, proportionately representing the people of North Carolina, which I think is mostly sad, but also interesting.
1: Yeah, I think politically, you know, we're, I mean, North Carolina is a swing state because it is half and half. So as far as like what our what our state government looks like and, and the balance of that, Um is a little bit closer, I think, than our, you know, gender and and race and everything else representation, I think.
3: What do you think, Danielle? Well, I'm scared to chime in because my Wi-Fi dropped out for 15 minutes of this conversation, but, um, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating what you said, but I found it interesting from Colin's reporting, I'll be 90-something before women have a seat at the table, basically. And that just kind of floored me because that's a really long time away. Um, I think also, I was reading Erica Smith's comments this morning, I think in our paper, but I've been reading a lot of news this morning. And she was talking about how women in the Democratic Party aren't getting the same uh, boost that they claim they are. I'm not sure I'm saying that as well as she said it, but um, I found it interesting too, because I think that's where you see the majority of women coming out of the Democratic Party, but she felt like she was overlooked despite being a woman. Um, so I think both parties have a long way to go to make sure they're representing
1: everybody. Yeah, and you know, that but it part comes through... down to money, right? Like who's going to give you money?
0: Yeah, and the, the big donors are often like old white guys. Um, and so there's the the challenge, uh, you know, it was interesting, the comments that were made during the the presentation of the report uh, on women's participation that I wrote about this week, uh, they had a panel discussion with a couple of women who work in politics, including State Senator Valerie Fushi from Orange County um, and uh, Nita Alam, who is a Muslim woman who's running uh, for Durham County Commissioner and I think is pretty much a lock on uh, yeah, winning that really- race. Um, and, and both uh, Alam and uh, Fushi basically said, you know, we're getting questions on the campaign trail and presumably from Democrats, because I think a lot of them, they're in very progressive counties with, you know, very democratic leaning electorate of, you know, how are you juggling your family responsibilities if you even have them? And of course, alum is like, I'm 26, I've got some dogs, I don't have kids at home, but if I did, it wouldn't be a problem. I would be able to balance that as anybody who is a father in the legislature uh, or in the state politics can do. but I think there's a lot of that institutionalized sexism that they still have to deal with, even in the, you know, party where it, it claims that they're really trying to elevate women to more uh, powerful roles.
1: Yeah, I shared that, that quote from your story when I tweeted it. And uh, yes, people had a reaction. And and I also I said... Um, reporters do this too. I've read way too many stories. And it's, it's not just like that you can say, oh, it's men are interviewing like it's women. Women also ask these questions too, like about how do you balance this and that? And I'm like, why are you asking me, you know, unless you're also asking someone else. So I've always made a point and I covered, you know, like things like uh, when I covered entertainment, and I'd interview like famous people, And you'd see these other stories by national media where they're like, oh, and she has a five-year-old. And I'm like, lots of people have five-year-olds. So I would also ask men that, too, you know, because they're, you know. Fatherhood's
0: a juggling act, too. And, you know, it shouldn't be less of a juggling act than motherhood in any, like, reasonable world.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think obviously it'd be good to have, you know, we're talking just about like just basic demographic representation and, and politics are all different. There are plenty of women Republicans. There are maybe not plenty of people of color Republicans, but just a variety of perspectives of rural, urban, economic, everything else between the parties. Um, but having that representation at the table, just it just adds something that that you're not going to get if you don't have it. Um, so I think that's something that you know. I feel like we've had this conversation on other domecasts too, or maybe like I keep bringing it up. <laughs> but if we can actually be a representative of a democracy. That that would be an ideal, I guess, right?
0: If only, right? Right. Our ideal Domecast fantasy politics. We can get it all straight and fix it before twenty eighty four.
1: Well, we'll say the four of us on this meeting right now—like three of us are women, so you know. Yeah, I get to be the
0: minority. It's you know, in this world, for, it doesn't happen too much.
1: There's room for growth. Of course, we're all white, though,
0: right? That's so true I'm too.
1: Representative of, of everything, so um, everyone has a lot of work to do in, in a lot of different ways, right? So, any last thoughts before we segue over to our headliner of the week? All right, we'll be back with Headliner of the Week. Colin, if you want to pull up our winners from last time.
0: All right, and we're back with Headliner of the Week. And looking at last week's results... Um, this was the uh, last week of our uh, intern, Julian Shinbarrow, joining us uh, last week. Um, and uh, unfortunately, Julian himself did not win Headliner of the Week, even though he was nominated. Uh, the top pick was the UNC sorority video uh, with 38%, followed by North Carolina itself at 34%. And then trailing behind that was uh, Julian and the John Neville case, uh, the Forsyth County uh, jail death. Um, so since are only four of us, I guess no one has to sit out. Uh, this week, and we all get to do a pick. Um, so Dawn, if you want to start us off.
1: Okay. So my pick this week is Judge Jim Gale, who was the um, judge that heard the Forrest versus Cooper lawsuit and issued a ruling this week um, against Forrest, and Forrest um, dropped the the lawsuit. But I don't cover um, courts. That's more of Will's focus and Daniel's focus. So it was fun actually to cover like the third branch of government um, in a very nerdy way. I was super excited about it. So I'm going to say Judge Gail's ruling is my headliner of the week.
2: Lucille? Yeah, so I am going to say I'm really interested in which way the Bernie supporters of the world are going to vote. I've seen a lot of anger on my social media feed from the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Um, so I'm gonna say, um, yeah, the more progressive left-leaning um, wing of the Democratic Party and how they'll vote is sort of my headliner of the week.
3: All right, Danielle. I'm gonna go with the postal service because I think that's gonna be a hot topic in the coming days, weeks. Um, see where that goes. I will say I've not followed that as well as I should be following it, but I think we all need to start reading up on what's going on there and uh, pick up some knowledge because it's going to get interesting. And it could be- Maybe that.
1: That could be our theme next week or in coming weeks. I would love to talk about the post office for half an hour. Oh yeah. Don loves the post office. I forgot.
3: <laughs> Maybe next week's episode we can
0: record at a rural post office and ask people how the, their mail is coming in and it's just been slowed down significantly. Yet <laughs> the mail enough.
3: is so slow right now. We were talking about that this morning.
1: I will say that one of the sergeant-at-arms at at the legislature is a former postmaster. We had one of those side conversations. I can't remember which one it is, one of the House sergeant-at-arms, but... All right, Colin, what's your headliner?
0: All right, I am going with the uh, State Ethics Commission's uh, unanimous vote to join Twitter this week. Um, (laughs) I dialed into one of their meetings uh, the other day just to see what the Ethics Commission was up to, and what they were up to was uh, considering whether uh, 2020 is a good year to join Twitter, the social media platform that's been out for over a decade. Um, They had an intern who presented uh, sort of the pros and cons of joining, and they decided that uh, it was a good way to communicate with the public about, you know, Ethics disclosure forum deadlines and ethics tips, uh, educational events that they host uh, at the the State Ethics Commission. Uh, Some of the older members of their board were a little confused by this discussion, uh, including the commission chairman, William Freeman, who said, quote, I don't have any idea what Twitter is, never used it. Um, So maybe he'll get to get to know Twitter now that uh, the Ethics Commission is uh, a part of the, the Twitterverse.
1: I don't know, maybe some people have the right decision of staying off of it, considering what it can be sometimes, even though we all love it.
0: Yeah, I did find it funny that the the, uh, director of the Ethics Commission very uh, carefully reassured um, the members of the commission that the official account was not going to engage with trolls. So if you send something mean um, or critical to the Ethics Commission on Twitter, they will not respond to you publicly. They will just ignore you. That's their policy. Probably as it should be for all of us, honestly.
3: Is it
1: ethical? Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Um, I'm Dawn Vaughn for Colin Campbell, Danielle Battaglia, and Lucille Sherman. Speaking of Twitter, make sure to vote in our Twitter poll for Headliner of the Week at Under the Dome. We'll um, talk to you next time.